This is Ethios with Bemneti Meskan from ethiospodcast.com. Ethios is a podcast that chronicles the lives and accomplishments of people of Ethiopian heritage and people of Ethiopian influence around the world. It's about what they do, how they got to where they are, and what inspires them. My guest today is Maza Mangiste. And there are people that we may call good who do things that we find completely evil. And there are people we would call evil who have forms of dignity and, and, and maintain some kind of ethical code that might surprise us. Maza Mangiste is an Ethiopian-American writer. Her debut novel, Beneath the Lion's Gaze, was selected by The Guardian as one of the 10 best contemporary African books and named one of the best books of 2010 by the Christian Science Monitor, Boston Globe, and other publications. Her fiction and nonfiction can be found in The New Yorker, Granta, The Guardian, The New York Times, BBC Radio, and Letter International, amongst other places. She is a Fulbright Scholar and was awarded runner-up in the 2011 Dayton Literary Peace Prize. Maza writes fiction and nonfiction dealing with conflict, migration, and the relationship between photography and violence. She was a writer on the documentary project Girl Rising and recently completed work on another documentary film, The Invisible City, which focuses on unaccompanied child refugees living in Kankuma, Kenya, which has one of the world's largest refugee camps. Maaza also has an interest in ways that the arts can promote human rights. She serves on the advisory board of Warscapes, an independent online magazine that provides a lens into current conflicts across the world. She is also on the advisory board of the Young Center for Immigration Children's Rights, which provides assistance for unaccompanied and separated migrant, immigrant, and refugee children through a variety of programs and services. Her second novel, set during the fascist invasion of Ethiopia in 1935, is forthcoming. Welcome to the show, Maza. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. It's great to have you, and I just wanted to tell you that uh, I've been reading your book. I'm about two chapters in. I'm very fascinated and looking forward to finishing it up. I'm a slow reader, so uh, God help me. But uh, I want to talk to you about your upbringing, your childhood, and who is this author? Who is Maza Mangisti? Can you give us some insight? Okay. Well, uh, the book was based in large part on the the memories that I had in Ethiopia growing up uh, during the early days of the revolution. I I was very, very young when the revolution um, started. I was really young, in fact. But for some reason, I think that that moment for my family and for our neighborhood and really for the country was so powerful. It changed everything in every way that I remembered things that I'm surprised now that I still remembered. Uh, I think because the change was so drastic and also because I think um, as a child, I was well aware that my family was trying to protect me from certain facts about the way that the world was changing. And when parents or grandparents or adults try to whisper or hide things from children, I think children are very aware. Children know that there's something going on. So that was my first sense, that something was happening in my country, something was happening to my friends. 
friends, to my relatives. But I didn't understand it. I only had a child's memory of it. Um, you know, so my childhood in Ethiopia was that kind of experience also brought together with very happy moments of, uh, you know, playing with my friends outside, going to visit my aunts in different parts of Addis Ababa, traveling with my mother to Nazet or Dabrazet. Uh, I had those memories of happiness, of, of, of a very typical childhood, at least uh, for me. And those were two, two very different things. But I have to say, I think that my earliest memories of Ethiopia were full of happiness and love. And those were the memories that formed who I was and who I became, uh, even as I moved here to the U.S., but I also had these other memories um, and other experiences of the revolution of soldiers and those things. And that began to inform me not only of what Ethiopia was about, but also gave me a sense of what was possible in the entire world. I didn't think that this was only happening in Ethiopia. My sense of this was the world is like this. Mm. Uh, so it was a way, you know, so I had love, but I was also learning something else about the way the world worked. And um, when, I, when I came here to the US, I came relatively young because the situation got pretty bad for my family. And I, uh, it was a big transition. And I spent most of my schooling here in the US. So I learned in English, I wrote in English, I read in English, um, I spoke to all my American friends in English about my country. Uh, and I think one of the things that I started to realize coming here is that people automatically assume that when you leave a country that is in civil strife and you come somewhere to the West, that I think they expect you to be number one, grateful, and, uh, they, you know, they expect you, number two, to feel like you've suddenly landed in paradise. Mm. Uh, but America was very difficult for me. Mm. And the kinds of uh, fear and maybe the sense of violence that I felt in Ethiopia, you know, America also is a very violent country. We are seeing it more often now. Mm. But... Uh, it is violent. And I was in a town that was predominantly white and I was one of the only um, black students in my school. So I, I understood the American kind of violence as well. Uh, so it, it's, it's, I, I was always very quick when Americans would say, oh, you must be so happy to be here. Mm -hmm. well, I'm happy to be safe, but I'm also well aware that I'm very different from some of you and that, does, that makes me not safe in some ways. Uh, so I have I, I wrote my book uh, Beneath the Lion's Gaze in some ways to talk about what happened in Ethiopia, to to ex not to explain but to answer my own questions that I had as a child. What was happening? Why did these things happen? Why did I remember these events? Why is it that my parents will never talk about certain things that I know? I saw and I witnessed. Why is it that my aunt behaves this way? Why is it that she cries all the time? You know, th these kinds of things that, that stay within a family, 
especially when there is trauma, uh, as a writer and as, as just a human being, I wanted to find out what, what went on, what was happening. So I wrote the book and I wrote a few drafts based purely on my own memories and also uh, having talked to some friends who were in jail or who escaped during the, the time of the Dirk. After I wrote these drafts and I had talked to friends, I had heard for many, many years uh, the kinds of stories that come up when people are at a party or people are sitting around the table and somebody mentions so-and-so's cousin or so-and-so's brother um, that was in jail or that escaped, you know, those small details of what life was like during the revolution. Um, after, after a while, I was able to write this book based on my memories and those stories and talking to friends. And then the next, uh, the next step with this was to begin research. And the research that I did involved not only reading historical um, books or political science books, uh, but also about Ethiopia, but also about the Cuban revolution and the Argentinian dirty wars or the revolution in Iran or what was happening in Latin America it, what happened in, in Russia during its revolution. I, I wanted to find out how not only just basic facts and data, but I was very interested in understanding what happens to human beings when a nation is in conflict. How do families begin to relate to each other when they are bound together by love and by blood, but they no longer share the same ideology? How do you sit across the table from someone whose ideas you no longer respect, but whose ideas may also put you in danger? Uh, and you know this happens in every single country where where there is conflict. It happened during the Arab Spring. It's happening now in 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 Egypt and in Syria and all these countries we're hearing about in the news. Uh, it happened in Ethiopia. It happened in the U.S. during the Civil War. It's happening right now with these elections. Um, we, I, I want to understand this thing that drives people to, um, I don't know how to describe it, but to become something else because of an ideology. Mm -hmm. And what that means also is that I, I'm curious about that tipping point uh, between good and evil, but I think between good and evil, there's a very large shade of gray. And there are people that we may call good who do things that we find completely evil. And there are people we would call evil who have forms of dignity and, and, and maintain some kind of ethical code that might surprise us. Um, and I'm curious about those things in my writing. So my experiences in Ethiopia became a really good way to write a book that, that asked those questions. And you will see in the novel that slowly my characters all begin to change. And they all change in ways that surprise them. Uh, and I think it happens. It happens in every country. Ethiopians are no exception. Um, all of my characters do something that I don't agree with. Uh, 
Um, but I don't judge them because I have not been put in those positions. And I haven't, uh, and I'm, I, I wrote the book, but it's, I think writers will understand me. I'm not sure if it's very, if it's very clear when I say that at some point when you're writing, you do not control where your what your characters do. Eventually, they take over the story. Is that really true? So do, do you it find is yourself it like, is having an idea for your character and it changes as you're writing? Yes. Wow. Yes, and it, it happened many times through the book. Okay. Uh, and many times, there were a few of the scenes that uh, towards the end of the book where I was very surprised and very disturbed by what happened to my characters. Uh, but that's what I wrote, and uh, I didn't plan on it. But it, you follow logic, and you follow what a character does in this moment. Well, if they did this in this moment, then this is the next thing that this other character would do, because you know that character very well. Mm. And soon, some things happen you don't expect. Yeah. So I, I want to know... Yeah. Uh, so where where exactly did you grow up in Ethiopia? How old were you when you came to the States? But I also want to know, what was your childhood like other than, obviously, you, you remembering that it was beautiful? What was the day-to-day? -day? Like, did you have siblings? And who did you spend most of your days with? Uh, what did you do with your days growing up? Well, uh, I have a sibling. I have a brother, a younger brother. And, you know, it's funny, if you ask me what I did most of my days, I was trying to think of ways to kill him most of the time. <laughs> and he was trying to kill me, too. Uh, we fought a lot. Yeah. We fought a lot. I, you know, and really it became, it would scare my mother because we really, we didn't understand if, if my brother died. I didn't think he could, I didn't realize he would be dead forever. So I just wanted to kill him. So... Uh, you know, we did that. We were very, very typical. Um, but the, I lived, of course, in Addis Ababa. I had the, the, the in my book, uh, the family, I don't, I don't know if I, I don't remember now if I said exactly where they lived, but it, it's based on the way that I lived in the neighborhood. I lived in Ethiopia, which is near, um, uh, near the French legation, Ferenczai Legacion. Mm -hmm. We lived there, and it was my grandparents and an extended family that lived in the house, very much like my novel. Mm -hmm. And we had a compound, and there were children everywhere. I, you know, it was, I feel like in some ways it was, um, it felt like a very normal childhood to me. I would, I didn't have dolls, but I, I, played in the mud and I made mud in Jara. You know, we would serve it to all the children. We would all eat it. It was disgusting. <laughs> you know, we just had, that was, that was what we did. And I had cousins. It was, a, it was, we have a very large family. So those were, that's, that's how I grew up. Um, I've lived in Kenya also and in Nigeria for very briefly, but we lived in Kenya also for a while. And I came to the U.S. when I was, it was young. I was seven. Oh, wow. So I left, you know, I left Africa in general very young, but I would go back and visit my grandparents um, often and my family there. And so I stayed connected. I was, 
well aware of what was happening. At least I knew the difference between coming, you know, leaving a town in America and going back to Addis Ababa and seeing the ration cards and we would have to get petrol only, a, you know, one day or a week or we only had so much and there were soldiers on every street corner and you couldn't leave after 6 p.m. and sometimes after midnight. You know, those are the things that I remembered from from being there. You still speak uh, so, the language? Do you, you speak American? You know, I understand it enough to be dangerous because <laughs> people speak to me and I, I can understand it, but they never notice that when I speak back, it's it's English mixed with Amharic. Mm. And, I, and I'm not completely fluent, but I understand a lot, a lot more than, than I can say, than I can speak. When did you realize uh, that you had a love of writing? Uh, I didn't for a long time. I have to say that I was a reader. I read everything um, from, I think, the minute that I, I know that I remember the first English word I learned how to say and how to spell when I was learning how to read. And it was T-H-E, you know, and I, I just and uh, you know, I ran home to my father, T-H-E, T-H-E, you know. <laughs> I remember that day, it just opened the world up for me, that I could read this, and I knew the Amharic, and I knew the English, and suddenly I knew two different worlds. And it was possible that that kind of existence was possible. I remember distinctly that day. Uh, so I think I've always, I've always liked to read uh, very much, but I didn't understand what it meant to be a writer, because I have not grown up in a family of writers and at least in my family um the idea of being a writer just didn't exist i i went to college thinking i would be a doctor i was i, I think i declared pre-med oh, wow. and i was good in biology i was good in math i was winning these kinds of awards in high school it was it made sense that i should do this of course my parents wanted me to be a doctor um, and it, you know, when I got in college, I said, I don't, I don't really want to be a, I don't want to be a doctor. So what I did was I moved out of pre-med, but I moved into political science so that when I called my mom and dad and they said, what are you studying? I could say, oh, it's some kind of science. <laughs> and <laughs> And they left me alone for two years. <laughs> did you know what you wanted to do, or did you I had just a, a sense. cop out? I thought I had a sense. I said I'm really interested. Again, in the back of my mind, were these questions about the revolution, and what happened politically in my country, and maybe political science. I was thinking of even journalism and and foreign correspondence. Maybe I could do these things because really my mind was still always on Ethiopia. What happened? What do I, why do I remember what I do? Why do my family, you know, why does my family tell me that this didn't happen, but I was a witness to this thing, this event? Um, so I had this sense, I, and I took political science and I took international politics and I found them the most boring classes. I couldn't do it. So slowly I was moving into an English degree because I learned that 
I liked to read. And I really liked the way that books were opening up new worlds for me and helping to answer my questions. When I was reading novels about uh, the Biafran War, or if I was reading a novel about the Chinese Revolution or the Cuban Revolution or what was happening in uh, El Salvador, I was seeing echoes of Ethiopia in those books. And I kept, um, so when I graduated, I, I had an English degree, which was a big fight with my family. And my father, one of the things that he said was, um, but English, but you speak English. You know, I said, but this is also something you can actually <laughs> make in it. So I did not think of writing. I didn't understand what that was. I just wanted, I just said, for some reason, this I can do. I know I can do reading. I can do something well. I, you know, once I moved out of college, once I graduated, I worked as a management consultant. It was a completely different world. Uh, so that was what I could do with an English degree. But gradually I started freelancing for uh, an advertising company. Really? And uh, yes, as a, and I was not hired. I was just freelance. And initially they didn't pay me. They just, I didn't have any experience. But somebody said, hey, do you think you could do some ad campaigns for us? Do you think you could do this kind of work? So I did it and we won one of the accounts and I moved into advertising and I worked there for a while. And that's really, I started doing that and was working for different products. And I think after a few years, I said, I, I cannot write about chocolate cake anymore. It's so dumb. It's just, it, you know, is, is but that, I, was that the type of, so you were a copywriter uh, on an ad campaign yeah. and, and yeah. can you mention the agency or the account that you're working on? I worked, uh, I worked in as a copywriter for a small company called Don Coleman Advertising or Don Coleman and Associates at that time. I think they changed their name. And then I eventually moved on to work with J. Walter Thompson, which was a larger company. Correct me if I'm wrong, but J. Walter Thompson is one of the oldest and one of the largest agencies in the world. It was, it, it's, it was huge. Yeah. yeah, it was, you know, and I did, I, I worked there, but I, you know, always again, there, I was reading every book I could find about the revolution. I was reading history books on Ethiopia. I was, wow. I was reading and trying to do my own research about this history, not really understanding what would come of it, because I didn't know at that time what it meant to be a writer or to write a book. I had no idea, but I was interested in this for a long, long time. And uh, eventually I moved to Los Angeles. I was living in Los Angeles and I was working in the film industry and I was working in a film studio and I had a job that was a dream job for most people. And I hated it. What was it? What I was the job? Was it? it was in film development. So I was reading scripts and, uh, you know, making recommendations, whether they should be bought or not, making, you know, working with, with right. So you would have a say in what movies were made and what movies weren't. I, 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 ha I could offer my, my opinions, yes, and then my boss would take it to the boss. But I, I didn't, 
I like the creative aspects of mm-hmm. the what I was reading, but I didn't like the job of the I didn't like the business side of that. Mm-hmm. It was really it wasn't what I imagined. And I hated the job so much that I I said if I don't try to write maybe I can write a book. Maybe I could do something because screenwriting is I I know the business. I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. But maybe I could this idea I have could be a book about a revolution but how do you how do I write a book how do you start a book what does it mean to be a writer uh so I decided at some point just to apply for schools and let's just see what happens and I did not expect to get accepted anywhere but I thought it would be a good opportunity to practice writing a short story and then once I got rejected I would just spend a year working on it again but i had to begin applying now so that the dream could be in process mm-hmm. and i applied and i got accepted to my top school i was shocked um completely shocked and i moved to new york and attended nyu and it was really there that the book that uh beneath the lion's gaze started to to form into something that is really fascinating so I, I want to ask you about your process and, and how you write. Is it similar to advertising where you start off with the storyline and you have a board full of post-it notes and a bunch of ideas everywhere? Do you have a process? Well, each book is different. That's, what, that's the one thing I'm learning now. Uh, the first book, because I really had no sense of how to do anything. How do you begin? Where is the beginning? Uh, if I if I say the revolutions, you know, the, we know the revolution started in 1974, and then Mangustu fled in 1991. Does the book go from that to the very end? You know, what story do I want to tell? That was the first question, and it took a long time for me to say I don't want to do from 1974 to 1991. But I did want to take the most pivotal years of the revolution, which was 1974 until about 1978, I think, when the when the, the Red Terror uh, was there. And so um, I wanted to deal with those years because my questions about human beings under pressure and in conflict with each other, that's, those years would make sense. Uh, and I... Um, I did not start in the beginning. In fact, my application for grad school, my application for NYU, I wrote a short story and it was 11 pages long and it was a, 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 a short story about soldiers coming to the house of a family in Ethiopia and there's a little girl and she's there. You know, it, it was kind of my story. And uh, that that 11-page story became the last chapter of the book. So I started kind of at the very, I started at the end. And uh, I wrote the story not in chronological order, but I wrote scenes that I was thinking about, memories that I had, uh, stories that I had heard from other people, stories people told me. I started fictionalizing those things and then slowly the story and a history started to come together 
with a and you're right with a lot of post-it notes a lot of papers on the walls on the floor all over my desk and it you know five years later the book was done that's fantastic can you tell us about the documentary girl rising that you worked on yeah girl rising was a really was a really special project for me it it centered on girls education worldwide but specifically i was working on the section that uh, focused on ethiopia and the producers had and the director had called me at when they were interested in in me writing for the project and they said look there are many issues in Ethiopia, but we think that forced early marriage is a very big issue that is preventing a majority of girls in the rural areas from getting married and, I mean, from continuing their education, sorry. And would you be interested in doing this? And I told them, look, I want to do my own research and find out actually what the, what the real issue is. I, I said, with all due respect, I, I don't need Americans to tell me what the issue is. I Let me talk to family. Let me talk to people. Let me do my research. And I want, I want let, me, let me see if this is the thing. Yeah. And they were fine with that. And I called my mother because, you know, I know, the, the, I know that girls get married at an early age in Ethiopia, but I didn't think it was a very big problem. And I know that it happened in some, you know, my mother's generation, her friends, so many of them had marriages arranged. Mm. And it was, it was dying away by that time, but there were still women, girls, who were being married to men much older than them. And, my, of course, my grandmother's generation, my great-grandmother had my grandfather when she was so young. I, I remember her. Still, you know, I remembered her. She was alive when I was when I would visit. So, I thought it was an old problem that was slowly going away. I didn't think it was a, it was a, a danger to girls at at this point. But I talked to my mother, and uh, she's like, "Yeah, of course, this is a problem." Really? I said, "Oh my gosh!" And I started looking at statistics, and the statistics confirmed it. Not in Addis Ababa, but in the rural, in these rural areas, it was it was prevalent. Um, so I I did so you know I talked to some other people and then I called back the 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 director and I said okay look let's do this um, I'd be interested in taking part and they um, I went to Ethiopia uh, I met a young girl in fact I met many girls. But I met one particular young girl that I would be talking to whose marriage had been arranged when she was 12. Mm -hmm. And she said, she said no, because at that point, a teacher had been informing the, the students, the girls, if someone tries to get to marry you or if your parents want you to get married, it, you have a right to say no. So there was that support system was, was growing there. Uh, she said no. And she had an older brother who supported her. And the older brother went to their mother and he said, you, you will not marry my sister to this man. 
she'll finish school. And if I have to sell everything I own so she finishes school, I will do it. And I thought that that was an incredible story because we're not used to men actually being a part of this in a positive way. And I think it's very important to, for people to realize that um, there are men and there are boys who are helping as much as some are, are hurting the situation. There, there are those who are helping these girls. And he was, he was an example. So my story focused on this young girl, but it also focused on her brother because I thought that that was significant. When you found out that the likes of Meryl Streep, Anne Hathaway, and Alicia Keys were involved in this project, did that make you a little bit um, weary, or did that kind of... Well, I was involved before they were. So I was the first one that was on board. At the time, by the, when I came on board with them, I was the first writer, I believe, that they contacted. We were, our segment was the first one that was shot. Everything was the first one. They did Ethiopia first. So we had no idea, I had no idea who else would be taking part. I didn't know if the film would come together or not. Had none of that. Um, and then as these other people started coming on board, from a producer's perspective and a director's perspective, it's very good for the film. Um, It gets people to watch the film. Um, When they, Meryl Streep agreed to do, to take part in the project, and they asked her, well, we have these countries, which one would you like to do? And she said, Ethiopia. I I don't know why. But she did. And then we were in the next thing you know, we're in the recording studio. And and I had a chance to meet her and, and talk to her. And uh, what I found was she's really she's got a she's she's thinking she's thinking the right way about these issues. Mm. Uh, she's very much an activist herself. Mm. Uh, and I you know, one of the things I get very worried about is the way that people think about Ethiopia when you have these social activist films uh, and uh, you know I maybe it's still this kind of Abisha pride but it's that sense of you might want to help people on the other side of the ocean but Americans in the West need to understand there are just as many problems here absolutely as that you know we're not out holding our begging hand mm. um, and I, for just from talking to the director and the producers and, and, and then seeing the way that, that Meryl was interacting with the story, it, it made me feel a lot better. Um, so the project has changed the lives of the girls in that area. It, it did not only, um, there was one girl who was selected to be on film in the, in the picture, but the, the, all there were, but if there was the money that, that came through, the donations that came through affected the entire region. Um, it, it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just one girl. That's great. You worked on yeah. another documentary called The Invisible City. Yes, Can you and tell that us a one is. That? Yes, that uh, the Invis- Invisible City is just recently released in Belgium and it's making the rounds now and I hope that it's somewhere in the States soon but 
The Invisible City was is a documentary that was shot over the course of, I believe, three years or maybe five years in a refugee camp called Kakuma. And the director, Levin, had lived in that refugee camp for a number of years and became friends with some of the unaccompanied children who were living there looking for their families. They had been separated uh, because of conflict. And the, the documentary opened my eyes to these refugee camps and the fact that they are supposed to be temporary homes for people. They're temporary shelters that have become homes mm -hmm. because people have nowhere else to go. Right. They leave Sudan, they leave Ethiopia, they leave Eritrea, they leave you know, the Congo, and they come, they, they come there. And unless you are willing to risk your life to go through the Sahara and pay human smugglers to go to Libya and possibly drown in the Mediterranean, you don't have a choice but these refugee camps. And many people are there, and I think there were 200,000 or more than that currently in Kakuma, and some of them have been there for about 20 years. Yeah. Uh, and it's a city like any city. There are cafes, there are places to buy cell phones, there are tailors, there are barbershops, there are hair salons, there are shops, I mean, everything is there, restaurants, and it's a town. It's amazing. We're looking forward to seeing that hopefully it comes to D.C. soon. Thank you. I'll, I will let you know. That'd be great. So you're currently, um, you currently have a visiting assistant professorship at Queens College um, in creative writing, correct? Yes, well, I was currently hired in a tenure track position there, so I am thrilled. So it's moved from visiting to permanent. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, yeah, it's great. Uh, thank you. What thank is that you. like? What is the, I want to know what the, the kind of the, your, your typical day is, you know, what time you get up, what, you know, what, what you do during your day and, uh, and how, how that process and, uh, you know, working in a, in a school and, and being a professor has uh, affected you. Well, I, I, re, I, I enjoy teaching very much. I really, really enjoy my students. Um, I have taught at, at other schools and have had fantastic experiences at NYU and at Princeton, and now I'm at Queens College. And um, what I enjoy so much about the students at Queens College is um, they come from a variety of backgrounds. I think sometimes in one class, I will have students um, who come from maybe 10 or 11 different countries. And once I counted, and I think we people there altogether spoke 15 different languages. And uh, to have that kind of diversity in a classroom when I am primarily interested in teaching students and, and talking to them about the questions that I had as a young writer and I still have today, which are things like, what is going on in this world? What is it, why is it that um, we, you know, we seem to be most afraid of people who are the most different from us? Um, I have them read books that, that, uh, literature and fiction that comes from countries that are currently in conflict so that they have an understanding that those countries are not only 
dealing with war, that these are families and there are weddings that happen and babies that are born and birthdays that are celebrated and funerals that happen just from old age or sickness. I want them to understand things beyond the headlines that you see on the news. And when I have students from some of these countries who are reading books about their countries, I understand, I wish I had been in that position when I was in college. I wish someone had given me a book about Ethiopia, about the revolution that was fiction or something I could really, really understand and grasp and say, read this and then let's talk. So my goal is to keep, to be able to do that with my students and also to introduce them to new ways of thinking about people they may not be familiar with. And I think that is one of the strongest factors, uh, excuse me, uh, one of the strongest things about literature. And um, it, this is, I mean, this is why I enjoy teaching. And, it, and at Queens, it's, it's very diverse. And in the graduate program where, where I teach as well, I teach um, people who are literary translators. And the numbers of languages in that classroom is, is astounding sometimes. And it's, it's a wonderful experience. Um, so when I'm not teaching that, uh, uh, I am often at my desk working and finishing my next book. Um, my life is generally very boring because between the classroom and the desk and my book, I don't really, I don't really do that much. I cannot do that much until this book is done. So I wake up very early. I do my writing. I go to the class. I come back home, I prepare for the writing for the next morning, and uh, that's how life goes. Interesting. So I, I have a question for you. I, yeah. have, a, I have a bad um, habit of picking on millennials, but uh, it's such a fun subject. <laughs> um, do you feel like you know, teaching millennials nowadays, I think it's probably the first generation that hasn't really seen hardship. You know, maybe, maybe they experienced the the you know 2007 2008 recession but yeah. it didn't last long enough to uh, maybe it did but um i feel like it's a generation that's growing up with very little conflict with very little hardship yeah yeah and, and understanding that really everything that you have can be taken away from you and that yeah. nothing is um really permanent do you think that that affects their writing and their understanding and their creativity that's interesting you know I don't have that in every, I, I don't have that necessarily in every classroom I've taught. For example, these students that I'm teaching now, some of, a lot of the students I'm teaching now currently, the semester just ended, but um, they have, they've witnessed things. You know, they are from Afghanistan mm -hmm. and they, they come from somewhere in the Middle East. They come from Nigeria. They, they, they come from very from these different backgrounds and they their perspective when when we are reading the work that I'm giving them they get it you know they really get it uh, but I have found in other classrooms um, that I've taught in other classes courses I've taught I've seen that there is a lack of experience and what happens is that the stories themselves, can only deal with a couple of things, going to a party and getting drunk, 
you know, having having your heart broken. At some point, I got so fed up with these stories. I told the class, "Look, number one, I don't want any." I got drunk and I and I vomited at a party story. <laughs> Number two, you're not. I want no heartbreak stories. I want no love stories. I want no. Oh my gosh, I just got high stories. I want none of it. And they got so quiet because they didn't know what else they were going to write about. And I said, there are other things going on in your life. What is it that you do not understand? And I want you to figure out how to write a story about that. Uh, and it worked. I thought I was there would be a mutiny in the classroom, but it it really it they they brought their stories, and you realize there that they're dealing with a lot of issues. They're dealing with things that you may not always see. You know these kinds of um, the things that nobody will talk about: the sexual assaults, the 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 rapes that might happen that they may not even understand. That's what happened, or being bullied so much that. At some point, they wondered if they could, they should even be alive. You know, those types of things that uh, that are still also very real. Uh, parents getting a divorce and trying to understand where your place is in a family that's breaking apart. They they understood those, and so we began there, and then we could begin to talk about the world at large, and I could begin to tell them. Okay, so just because there's a war in these countries that I've been talking about, I want you to understand everybody is experiencing also what you're experiencing now, uh, and it it the conversations then become richer. But I really do have to make a list of things. I I ban so many things every year, so and slowly I add to my list because they find ways to get around it. <laughs> are, you are you a tough teacher? Are you? I am. Are you? A, I am. Is it tough to get an A in your class? Can I say this on a podcast? I don't know if I should tell them. <laughs> Do you give like only like three A's every every semester or something like that? No, or you have a rule? Better, you know, they better work hard. Uh, Hopefully they don't listen to this. But <laughs> I am not a hard grader, but I scare them. I scare them in the beginning. Good. And is, then, is it and like then that I'm mentality when you're in jail, you, you know, you get in a fight with the biggest guy first. <laughs> that way <Yeah>. they... <laughs> That's it. You get your street cred the first couple of weeks. You have to walk then... in with a black eye. Yeah, that's <laughs> Maza, what do you do with your spare time? I know you said you don't do a lot, but I, 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 I don't think that you can live in New York and not have interesting friends or colleagues. And, yeah. You know, what, what is well, the life of a scholar like in New York? Uh, you know, I'm really, I, uh, I, I, I have friends who are, writers, but I also have friends who are artists, visual artists and, and photographers. Um, I'm very much into photography. I have my cameras, I have my things, and the days when I just, I cannot deal with words, but I still want to understand narrative and story, I take my camera and I walk around and, and uh, do those, you know, do that. Really? Uh, what, kind, what kind of photos do you yeah. Uh, I use only, well, I just got a digital camera. Finally, I broke down. But I use a film camera, and I use very, very old lenses. Uh, and, I, yeah, I just, I like the process. I like the snow, the slowness of using a film camera that's, everything is manual. I like it. Mm. I, I think that's part of the, the process of writing a novel, the 
you have to be patient. You have to take your time. And it has to be almost obsessive with detail. Um, and so I, I find that same thing with, with photography. And I will, yeah, I've been, I've been doing it for a, a few years now. I still, you know, need practice. It's constantly practice. But I really enjoy it. I got to be honest with you. So I have probably yeah. my biggest passion is photography and I sh I've oh, been really? shooting for years I've done everything from studio to you know outdoors weddings I've done everything oh but, my gosh and I used to do film a lot okay. and there was a time where developing it and the, the unknown was very intriguing but I said I, I can't keep taking shots thinking they're gonna come out great and you develop them and it's like blacked out or white so it's <laughs> I said no more, and I, I've been digital for so the you last do digital? ten years. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, I still have my film cameras. It really, yeah, I get it. I have. I just got a digital. Finally, a friend of mine just kept bugging me, bugging me, and finally he said, "Look, I'll give you. It, I'm, I'm not going to give you mine, but it'll be almost. It's so cheap. Just do it. Just <laughs> get this." So I got this so this uh, this digital camera, and I put one of my I got an adapter to put one of my old lenses on there. Uh, and I'm trying, but the thing that you're talking about, the waiting and not knowing what you get, that the taking a digital taking a picture on digital and seeing it immediately, it just for me takes the joy out of it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So I get it. I think I, I'm. I told myself this summer I would take the digital, and I'm starting to practice on it. I, I still need to learn it a little bit more, um, but I—it's just the the uh, photography is just—it's fantastic. I never learned how to do anything in studio. It's for me. I've just—I'm self-taught. It's just I use the natural lighting, whatever is mm -hmm. there. Yep. But it's one of the things that I do want to learn is. Uh, lighting and uh i think some of my favorite photographs are those old studio photographs from the 50s 60s mm -hmm. yeah they're just amazing i yeah. think also people had an an aura about them then there was formality was part of the culture like you dressed up you wore suits, yeah you wore yeah your hair was always done it was th that era there was there was no such thing as casual even casual was done with with grace and class, so the photos yeah. just seem to unattainable almost in today's age. But yeah, you know, I think that's why when I shoot, I shoot black and white film only, and I think it's because I was thinking about why do I like it? Why is it I'm not quite? I can't color for me when I take in color. There's something missing. Um, but I think in Ethiopia, all we saw, all I saw were black and white Absolutely. photographs, yeah. right? In my grandparents' house were always these big black and white studio photographs. And uh, my photographs that were hanging up in the house were black and white, the ones of me. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I think that was my first visual context for the world. And I, I think that's why, to me, this feels the right way. And I think black and white, the way you're talking about the sense of the people had an air about them, I think black and white film helps me try to capture some of that. And once in a while, once in a while, I can take a photograph where it feels, you can't tell that it's not 1935. Hmm. 
but only if I'm lucky with a lot of the way that someone's dressed. You know, these are street shots. Yeah. So it's it's try. I'm trying to capture that thing that you're talking about. So I have a very cheesy question, but yeah. in my mind, every writer should have like a vintage typewriter and some oh, stationary. I, <laughs> I do. Typewriter. I do. <laughs> you know what kind of is? Because I, I I have a. I also have a passion of someday. I, I keep telling myself I'm going to cover collect typewriters, but uh, I have one. Oh, I have a Remington yeah. that I'm very proud of. Oh, that's but wonderful! It's... I have um, that's great. I have an Olivetti, nice. Underwood. Okay, I, my typewriter game is not quite strong yet, so I don't know. I've never seen an Olivetti before, but I, I I'm sure it's really classy. It's the it's a really old one, but I I was using it for a while. Um, really? Because I I yeah I thought it this would that's why I bought it to use it and you know I had the ribbon and the problem with these things that nobody will tell you mm -hmm. is when you're using the typewriter you have to hit the key so hard that yep. your arm gets tired after the first word and then when I'm typing the typewriter because you're pri applying so much pressure the entire typewriter keeps moving across the desk <laughs> <laughs> so I would put two bricks on the side, and I said, this isn't working. Yeah. So I have it now. It's just for decoration, unfortunately, but uh, I really like it. You know, what amazes me is how convenient it is to write nowadays and yeah. how easy it is to spell check and format and, yeah. and do all. Can you imagine if some of these writers in the earlier days, like our, you know, the Hemingways of the world, and if they had yeah. some of the resources that we had? I, I feel know. like their body of work would have been like more amazing than what it is. It, you know, in, maybe yes, but I also the thing that it's, that scares me about the computer the computer age that we are in. Along, I stopped handwriting my drafts a long time ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I found that when I was handwriting my hand just handwriting and then typing after that was. Um, I wasn't erasing my mistakes. Mm. I wasn't erasing certain trial scenes I was trying to do. So all those things stayed, and uh, it was. It sometimes I would go back and look at them and realize I could use it later. Wow. What happens with the computer? You just delete and you move on. Yeah. And there's something about sometimes leaving your mistakes on a page that I think is really important for the whole process, for the whole imaginatory, imaginative process. That's a good point. And I, I'm afraid that we lose that, but it is, it is much faster. Yeah. Where do you do and, your best writing and, and what time of day, do you know? Uh, do you like well, getting away I, or do you I, like to write in your apartment? Or Well, I, um, I work from home and I, uh, I can do that. It's generally quiet i i have everything there i have my coffee i have everything but um uh, sometimes there have been times especially when i need to really focus on revisions or i'm on a very very tight deadline where i will uh, i've i've gone out of town and just shut off everything and uh, bury myself somewhere until I'm done with something and then I come back. And do you have a secret getaway that you go to, like a city or yes. a town or whatever? Yeah, I have, a, I have a, yeah, I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a special place also in Manhattan, nice. in the city, um, a special library where it is 
completely isolated and completely quiet and I can hide there sometimes for, you know, if it's only for a day or, or two or three days that I can work there, then I do that. And I can't tell you where that is either, but so, I have you know certain what? places, but most of the time it's, it's here at home. There is this bookstore that I read about that it's a members-only bookstore. It's a secret bookstore in, in Manhattan. Yeah, and yeah. Only certain scholars are invited by other members, and there's a like yes. a cap as to is it one of those types of places? It's kind of. I can't <laughs> I tell you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well, the last question that I had for you is, um, you know, for anybody who's listening who wants to maybe pursue a career in writing. Um, they're not quite sure whether they should do it, or even if it's you know a student and they you know they might have been in a place where you were, where their parents were expecting them to become an engineer or a doctor. You know, is there a light at the end of the tunnel for somebody who wants to be a writer? Is there a cl clear career path that you could have taken? Is there any advice that you can give a person who wants to maybe even switch careers into writing? Well, yes. The, the first thing I would say is um, I know that there are many people, there are many Avisha, you know, both students and people out of school and they are in the work, they're working now who, who have this sense that they would like to write. And the, the, first, the first piece of advice that I would give them is if you would like to write, then you should, then you write. Uh, even if it's only for yourself right now, you should be practicing the habit of becoming disciplined, making sure that you are writing every day, making sure that you are reading every day, in reading something and you're writing something down. Um, and then if you find that it's becoming very serious that your body of work, you're writing so many poems or you're writing so many stories and, and they're getting better, you think, and you, you want to figure out how to make them even better, then I think that there are, um, there are of course schools that you could apply for, but one of the other ways that I would recommend, especially for people who are working and are not prepared or not financially able to quit a job and go to school, um, is to look for summer writing programs that are sometimes one week, sometimes two weeks, uh, sometimes they are free, Sometimes you can get a scholarship and sometimes they cost, but you will find that information online. I've had a lot of people contact me about uh, the fact that they want to write or they have a manuscript or they've written poetry and they want me to help them get published. And it's, it becomes, it's a really difficult question to have to answer. It's um, if you can imagine that, that, uh, publishers and agents are constantly getting asked by writers, will you look at this? Will you look at this by my friend? Will you look at this by my cousin? It becomes, they are, they are very jaded with those kinds of questions. But um, what I am happy to do is take a look at a page or two of a manuscript. I cannot read all of it in, in general. And, um, but I've had, I've had writers come to me and I've given them resources this is what you can do. This is how you write a letter. Here are some publishers or websites to look at. And I'm more than happy to do that. I am working with a, um, a group of Ethiopian writers who are short story writers. And 
um, I'm looking and I'm still looking for short story writers writing not not only in English, but in all the languages spoken in Ethiopia. Amharic, um, Tigrinya, Afanoromo. I'm I'm actively actively searching for people writing in those languages. So I'm just using this podcast also as a call that if there are writers out there who are working in those languages or people who are translators, please get in contact with me. I'm I'm happy to talk about that. There is a project. The stories I have are growing. They are fantastic. I am editing them. I'm working with the writers. So this is one way that those people who are interested might be able to get published. That's great. Fantastic. So for anybody who wants to get a hold of you and they want to read some of the work that you've done, um, you've you've contributed to The New Yorker and several other very well-known publications, where can people find your work? Uh, well, you can find it online if you just type my name. There are a lot of things that come up. I am not very good with technology. I am sorry to say, and my website is not very good, and I'm trying to fix it, and I don't know how, but I'm working, I'm trying to figure out how to put most of my writing up there. Uh, but you can find me online on my website at www maazamengiste.com, M-A-A-Z-A-M-E-N-G-I-S-T-E.com. And my email address is maaza at maazamengiste.com. And you can find me on Twitter, maazamengiste.com. No, maazamengiste, sorry. <laughs> maaza, I'm going to ask you one last question. Yes. When, when did you realize you had landed? Like when... When did you know that you're like, all right, I've made it. I no longer have imposter syndrome. I feel like my peers recognize me. Was there was there a day that you know? Because <laughs> for me, because honestly, for kidding? me, I still have imposter syndrome. I feel like there's no way someday somebody's gonna say, "Dude, your stuff is not good. Get out of here." I know, right? <laughs> I keep thinking someone will knock on my door. <laughs> We're here to take away your writer card. It's a real you know? thing, right? It's it, yeah. It's did, never. Did you ever feel like you you're you know, you're really kind of happy with, with uh, an accomplishment. I always, I feel like there's always, there's always room to improve. And, you know, especially with this second book, I decided that the first book was scary for me because I had no idea what it was. I don't, I didn't know what, how to write a book. I didn't know anything. I didn't know if I could write this history. I did not know if I was qualified. I did not know if I had the right to write about Ethiopia as somebody from the diaspora and somebody who was younger than the revolutionaries that were there at that time in the 70s. What right did I have to tell this story? And it took a long time to understand, wait a minute, this is my story. I'm not telling someone else's story. This is mine. Mm. Um, But it was a really scary thing. And the one thing I decided when I was writing the second book is look, if it does not scare the crap out of you, then you are not doing it correctly. Mm, that every project should be something you fear, or how do you grow as a human being, or how do you grow as an artist? I don't want to do what I have done before. And the next book will be the same, and the book after that will be the same. So, you know, I hope I never in some ways get over that terror um, I have not, I don't think I've made it. Uh, every book reminds me again of how much I don't know. 
And I think that's the way it should be. Because if we get too comfortable, then we stop growing. And I, I really don't want to do that. Wow. Maza, I, I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for being oh, on the thank show. You. Thank you. Really looking forward to finishing your book and, and anticipating the next one. Thank and, you. Uh, best of luck to you. Thank you so much, Ben. That's to find out more about my guest and to subscribe to the podcast, please visit www.ethiospodcast.com.